Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, by the time our audience hears this, I'll have turned 32. Yay! The crushing realization (laughs) as to where I am in this life may mean that this is the last episode we've recorded. (laughs) But hopefully not, because I'm really enjoying doing this. I actually am thrilled that we finally got to this film. Me too. By the way, guys, welcome back to What Went Wrong. I'm Chris Winterbauer, along here with the annoyingly youthful 31 year old who, who remains 31 <laughs> against all the advice that I gave her <laughs> to just age with me uh Lizzie tell the folks at home what film we are talking about today we are doing a much requested movie today it's something a ton of people have shouted out but most recently uh life is strange 2021 on Instagram aka Logan uh thank you Logan for the recommendation the movie is, of course, Ishtar. Ishtar. Yeah, and this is one that, you know, I when we first started doing this podcast, I started looking at all these, like, listicles of, oh, here are the mm-hmm. worst movies, the movies that had, like, that were just such a bomb and everything went wrong on set. Ishtar is, like, high on that list, always. It's always in, like, the top five, yeah. it seems. Yeah, so I was always kind of avoiding watching it, honestly, because I was like, it's going to be bad. Like, it has to be really bad, and then also it's going to be, uh, you know, a trash fire to talk about. Neither of those is particularly true. No. Uh, I would just like to jump in and say Ishtar, I thought, was delightful. It's good! And I particularly enjoyed the initial 25 minutes of the film, which is basically... Dumb and Dumber meets Simon and Garfunkel yes, and exactly <laughs> with Warren is. Beatty <laughs> and Dustin Hoffman playing. It's like Dumb and Dumber inside Lewin Davis. Yeah. And it's so much fun. And I thought it was absolutely charming. And it goes a little off the rails in the middle and towards the end of the movie. But overall, I was so pleasantly surprised yeah. when we watched this. It's lovely. It's short. So if you want something it's fun to watch. It's not very long. It's under two hours. Yeah. Yep. For anyone that doesn't know, Ishtar is uh, a movie that stars Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman and was directed and written by Elaine May. We're going to get into all of them in a little bit. Right at the top, I do want to say 
Yes, we are 100% aware of the allegations against Dustin Hoffman. We're not going to talk about that at all in this episode. It's not part of the story, but we are aware of it. So anybody that might be upset by that, um, feel free to bow out of this one. We're not going to blame you. I want to start with a quote from Elaine May, who said, If all the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a rich woman today. Which yes, <laughs> I think that's entirely fair. I've had so many people reference it as a terrible yeah, movie. Yeah, I don't I think they've watched they it. it. No. So I think the question that we have to pose at the top of this uh, is how did a movie that's listed as a favorite of Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. Richard Linklater, and Edgar Wright become a dead on arrival stinker that ruined the career of its director? And that's really what we are going to dive into And I'm today. very curious because I would just like to say... I took the time to make a list of all the movies that we've covered that I thought were worse than Ishtar. Oh, good. Or that I Most thought Ishtar was better than. Yeah. So here, here's Chris's list of Ishtar beats this movie. Cleopatra, Last Action Hero, Popeye, Bonfire of the Vanities, Twilight Zone Movie, Dr. Doolittle, Waterworld, Last Airbender, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Showgirls, Eon Flux, Heaven's Gate, Fantastic Four, Southland Tales, Moreau, Evan Almighty, and cats. And I might even want to watch Ishtar over The Abyss, even though The Abyss is really good. I just like I would prefer Ishtar, Ishtar over The Abyss. Uh, I have to say, I'm going to take cats and showgirls off that list. <laughs> <laughs> showgirls, I might take off, but cats, 100, I will never watch again. I, I would can't rather, wait to watch it. I want it to be an annual thing. <laughs> I would rather have to eat cats than watch cats again. All right. So Ishtar was released in May of 1987. It was widely considered a massive flop. It was known as Warren's Gate, which is a reference to Heaven's Gate. We'll get into that a little bit later. It's not even clever. It doesn't even work. It rhyme. doesn't work. It's not as good as Kevin's Gate, which we covered in Waters no. Waterworld. Um, so the plot, it's a little hard to explain, but it follows two down-on-their-luck uh, singer-songwriters, as Chris mentioned, sort of the Dumb and Dumber characters. Um, I believe their names they're are... They're wannabe Simon and yes. Garfunkel. <laughs> like the whole But they're like a decade too late movie. to be Simon and Garfunkel as well. And beyond untalented. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're so bad. It's amazing. They are bad. Um, they're bad, yeah. but in, in a very sincere way that I think is hard to pull off. Anyway, they're yes. in New York. They've both kind of left their, like, regular jobs to pursue a songwriting career, even though they're absolutely horrible. And after they've done their sort of final show in New York where they really bomb, the guy who they've finally convinced to sort of be their agent tells them, like, listen, the only jobs I can get you are one in Honduras where the acts keep quitting because they're afraid that of the <laughs> like the, insurrections the, the, that are the, happening. Yeah, like the roving death <laughs> yeah. squads that are. And then the <laughs> other is in Morocco at like a um a hotel that's popular with American tourists. And so basically Che Casablanca yes, <laughs> over there. They basically are just they they kind of give up and decide to just not accept this the the boring life in New York that might await them if they stick it out and they go to Morocco. They become embroiled in a sort of complicated um relationship with both the CIA and a sort of member of a, a leftist um, party. Uh, a Shia, yeah, Shia revolutionary group. Yeah, uh, all of which kind of centers around the nexus of a fictional country called Ishtar. Yes. However, the movie is spent in Morocco. Yeah. That's really all you need to know. Everybody ends up fine. Um, it's it's sort of a delightful romp. One of the best parts of the entire movie is, I thought, Charles Grodin as the CIA yeah, he's agent. Great. <laughs> Who's the father in Beethoven, so if you don't good. remember him. And he's so good as this, like, 
just uh, in over his head <laughs> CIA agent. And, <laughs> so and the funny. movie, the, the best way I can think of describe it is it's like um, Step Brothers by way of Syriana. Yes. And, like, that's, 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 I couldn't really, it's such a weird mashup. It's really it, strange. It, which it, I, sometimes it feels like Indiana Jones. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, it's it's indescribable. I really think you just need to go watch it if you haven't. You definitely should watch it. And both Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty are, are extremely charming in it. So wonderful. So while Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman obviously went on to have very illustrious careers with little to no damage, uh, Ishtar effectively ended Elaine May's directing career. This is the last film that she ever directed. Was it her first film as well? No, it was not. Okay. She directed at least two other films before this, which we will get to. There are plenty of directors that we have talked about on this show before, all of them men, I think it's worth noting, that had box office bombs and then returned to make hit after hit pretty much no problem. Yeah, and perhaps the only exception being the one that proves the rule is Karen Kusama, mm-hmm. who directed Eon Flux. If you haven't listened to our episode on it, check it out, uh, who was effectively ostracized for more or less 10 years before coming back with small indie films yeah. to kind of regarner her position in the industry. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder why Elaine May was shown the door. I think the answer is is pretty simple. Um, when someone is a pioneer in a field, they're kind of expected to carry the weight of their entire demographic. And if they fail, the assumption then is that you've closed the door, um, not just for yourself, but for everybody waiting in line behind you. It's an extremely unfair um, amount of pressure and weight that's on your shoulders. Uh, I actually got a chance recently to talk to Regina King um, at my job about her directorial debut one night in Miami, and she expressed a similar frustration. Um, she is potentially going to be the first African-American uh, female director ever to be nominated for an Oscar. She deserves it, by the way, but it's the same thing of like, if this fails, she closes a door. That's kind of what we see happen with Elaine May here, and it sucks and it should stop. So let's start with who Elaine May is. Now, you may actually know her comedic partner in crime by name a bit better than you know Elaine May. That's because she was one half of the comedic duo Nichols and May, as in Mm -hmm. Mike Nichols, who did The Graduate, among many other things. They were a stand-up comedy duo uh, from October 8th, 1960 to July 1st, 1961, they had an evening with Nichols, uh, with Mike Nichols and Elaine May on Broadway. It was very successful. To give you an idea of their sense of humor, I want to play a short clip of one of their sketches for you. And all you need to know about this one, the setup is that uh, a guy saw an ad for a $65 funeral, like a discount funeral. And he is uh, trying to collect on that <laughs> ad and discovers that it, it doesn't exactly tell you all you're getting in for. <laughs> uh, a minute before you go, Mr. Mazofreen, I... I was just wondering, would you be interested in some extras for the loved one? What kind of extras? Well, how about a casket? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that included in the funeral? No. We have to have a casket. Yes, it looks better. (laughs) (laughs) She's good. Such a good dead I love that. Yeah, they're great. So um, that's really where she got her start, and particularly in a lot of improvisation, which will uh, come up a bit later as well. Now, by the early 80s, she had a pretty decent career as a screenwriter and or script doctor. Most notably, she had co-written Heaven Can Wait alongside Warren Beatty. Mm -hmm. 
Um, she had directed The Heartbreak Kid based off Neil Simon's play. That was a moderate success. Charles Grodin is in that one as well. Now, she'd also written and directed Mikey and Nikki, which was a bomb. Hmm. She also allegedly... I've never heard of it. Yeah. It's not actually supposed to be bad in retrospect, but it did not do well upon release. Now, she also allegedly shot 1.4 million feet of film for that movie. Whoa. Yes. It's a lot. Now, it left her with a bad reputation as a troublesome perfectionist, if you Mm -hmm. will. And she was kind of put in movie jail after this one and didn't direct another movie for 10 years, which the next one, of course, will be Ishtar. Interesting. Now, there were some other female directors sort of getting started working in the 80s. Think Penny Marshall, uh, Barbara Streisand with Yentl, Susan Seidelman with Desperately Seeking Susan. However, they tended to focus on more female-driven stories, which I think is worth Mm -hmm. noting because that's not what Elaine May focuses on. No. Ishtar almost seems like it it feels very male-oriented in a lot of ways, but it subverts a lot of those expectations a lot of her comedy was um and i think that's that's something that kind of rubbed people the wrong way um early on because they didn't really know what to make of it so warren Beatty and dustin hoffman both owed elaine may big time she had done pretty massive uncredited rewrites on warren Beatty's reds which he won the best director oscar for and was nominated for best screenplay for by the way she'd also been a strong contributor in post-production on reds basically it's not entirely clear that that movie would have been what it was without her Mm -hmm. and he kind of admitted that she's the third person he thanks in his oscar acceptance speech after diane keaton and jack nicholson who are the stars of reds and diane was his girlfriend at the time Now, she'd done something similar for Dustin Hoffman for Tootsie as well. She'd done a massive Mm. amount of uncredited rewrites and was credited with kind of helping fix the story of that movie. So pretty much immediately after making Reds, Beatty starts looking for a project for May to direct. This does make me like Warren Beatty. Um, He knew he owed her and he was immediately Mm -hmm. like, I am going to pay you back. I know that Mm -hmm. you're not getting the opportunities you deserve. I'm going to make sure you get them. He And just timing for the audience, I think this was like 1981, 82, 82. is when Reds comes out. Yeah. So immediately after, in about 83, he starts looking for something that they can work together on. He said that he felt like she never really had a good producer to support her. So he's like, you know what? We're going to make a movie and I'm going to produce it and star in it so I can make sure that you're getting all the protection you want. I am really going to set you up to succeed. Right. This ends up backfiring, which we will get to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Warren Beatty. Uh not one to sit back and let other people have all the control. It's that, but it's a, it's a combination of things. May kind of immediately expressed interest in the Middle East as a big set piece. And also the old Bing Crosby and Bob Hope Road 2 movies, particularly Road mm-hmm. to Morocco, um, which is one that they had done. She comes up with a basic plot for Ishtar. But she also decides that instead of casting Warren Beatty to type, which would be playing the sort of Bing Crosby um, Mm -hmm. ladies man type, she wants to flip it and have him play against type to play the sort of bumbling oaf that Bob Hope Mm -hmm. usually played. While the co-star, who they were already talking about being Dustin Hoffman, should play the debonair ladies man. So the idea of them playing against type actually does end up getting sort of much maligned down the road from a bunch of critics. Um, But here is Dustin and Warren talking about it in one of the few interviews that they did to promote the movie. As I watched the film and the roles you're playing, and I laughed so much and had such a good time, but Warren, I couldn't help but wonder if at any time uh, did Elaine May ever consider reversing, in other words, you playing Dustin's role and him playing your role? 
I have no idea. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Did she write it for you too? Yeah, yeah, she wrote it for, for both of us. Yeah. She purposefully, I think, wanted to tell the truth, and that is that the, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the more attractive and the more sexy of the two is obviously me, and that's the part that I play in the film. And she wanted to tell the truth about Warren that, you know, even though he has this image of being the kind of leading man, very sexy guy, that in reality he's a really so stiff and, you know, klutz and, and well, you can see for yourself. That's why he doesn't do these interviews very often. So the, it's not a character part he's that he's... Very Not a character part that he's playing in the film that's very close to him. Yes. He's not intelligent. Everything he's going to say now has been written for him by people. That he That's awesome. <laughs> uh, I thought the against type worked wonderfully overall. I thought it worked I, well, too. I, I was a little skeptical at the top, honestly, with Warren Beatty. Not so much with Dustin Hoffman, but I did think it it worked fine by the end. Uh, yeah, I bought it. I thought his... Oh man, Hawk, you're such a cool guy. Like I just, I love like the way you walk with that confidence. It's the walk of a shorter man. Like there's so many funny <laughs> lines that I loved. Um, and then Dustin Hoffman's preening Napoleonic confidence is great. I bought it. Potentially more I accurate think, to Dustin Hoffman's real personality. <laughs> I was gonna say yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think I that thought, one might be real. I, um, yeah, I thought it was very charming. Yeah. So Beatty takes the story to his friend Guy McElwain, who happens to be the chairman of Columbia Pictures, and it is already being billed as a Beatty May production. He also told his lawyer, quote, anything she wants, period. That's my negotiating position. So that's where this starts. Now, at this point, Dustin Hoffman is already quasi attached, and he was also, as we said, indebted to Elaine May. Now, if you think Warren Beatty was at the top of his career um, prior to this movie, check out this list of Dustin Hoffman's credits in the decade leading up to Ishtar. All the President's Men, Marathon Man, Kramer vs. Mm-hmm. Kramer, Tootsie, and Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. It's pretty intense. So yeah. despite all of the star power currently attached to this, uh, Guy McElwain at Columbia is a little skeptical because all three, Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, and Elaine May, were known for being extreme perfectionists and perfectionists yeah. who are asking that they shoot on location in the Sahara Desert. He's like, yeah. this has got to be a no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Too many people are going to die if we green light this. So that being said, he kind of weighs his options and figures if he passes on this, another studio is going to pick it up and it's going to be a big hit and I'm going to look like an idiot. So mm-hmm. he goes ahead and green lights it basically with the caveat that they want to discuss not shooting in the Sahara Desert. Hi there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
<laughs> so Elaine finishes the script and Warren hands it over to Dustin Hoffman, uh, who doesn't love it. He actually says, no, I don't really want to do this. Um, mm-hmm. Warren keeps pushing and Dustin and his friend playwright Murray Shiskel agreed to have dinner with Elaine May and Warren Beatty. Dustin said, quote, we felt that the movie should not leave New York. That whole Hope and Crosby thing in Morocco was a distraction. Just stay with these guys who think they're Simon and Garfunkel and play that out. Warren and Elaine disagreed, but he deferred, deferred, deferred to her. I I gotta say, I wish I'd gotten to see just those two guys in New York. I actually completely disagree. I'm the opposite of you. My favorite part of this was the second they left New York. Oh, I just loved all of the New York face bumbling about. But I just feel like I've clearly, seen it. And there was something about absolutely like yes. the whole thing that happens to them in Morocco. It ends up actually being very reminiscent of things that we have now seen so much like Tropic Thunder comes to mind. Yes, but I think it fair. seems more played out, but it wasn't at the and time. You did miss out and you did miss out on the Charles Grodin. Who is uh, so funny in this. Yeah, not to not to sidebar too much, but I did feel that once they get in the desert, the movie just starts dragging a little bit and that was i guess more of what i was (laughs) reacting to no i still enjoyed it a lot i just i loved their new york scenes too (laughs) dustin hoffman out on a ledge yeah (laughs) so i kind of expected that dustin hoffman was going to be a bit of a pain in the ass on this set that doesn't actually seem to be the case um as soon as he realized they were going they were not going to budge on the plot he basically just resigns himself to doing what they want him to do and and hoping for the best one because he he owes elaine may big time and Mm -hmm. knows it and two, because Warren Beatty was so confident that it would work, that he's like, whatever, I'm just going to, I'm going to choose to trust yeah. them and just do it. And he gave a very committed performance. He does. He, he's all in. Look, Dustin Hoffman, personal stuff aside, he's an amazing actor, um, and he is very fun to watch in this. Now, before shooting had even begun, the movie had cost $12.5 million. Wait, what? Uh, yeah, yeah. That is 5.5 <laughs> for both Dustin and Warren each. Oh, eat what? Oh, yeah. One million for <laughs> Elaine's script and 500,000 to Warren Beatty for producing. Now, most importantly... I forgot that this was like the flaming 80s of just rolling rails of cocaine before making deals. And it's like, yeah, let's go, let's go. Twelve point five million. Most importantly, all three were promised heavy input into the final cut. That will prove to be a massive problem oh, no. down the line. Isabel Ajani was cast as uh, Shira. I think that's her name. She also mm-hmm. happened to be Warren Beatty's sort of girlfriend at the time. She apparently had a bad time on this. Yeah, um, It was kind of like everybody was fighting and nobody paid attention to her. She does a great job. Yeah, She's good. She's in uh, Possession, if you guys haven't seen that. She's also uh, was with Daniel Day-Lewis for a little while, which I didn't know. They have oh, a son together. Interesting. Oh, I didn't know There that. you go. Now, despite Columbia's misgivings about shooting in the Sahara, it turns out that their parent company, Coca-Cola, had a lot of frozen assets in Morocco (laughs) and needed to burn some money over there. So they go to Guy and they're like, actually, we're going to go ahead and need you to shoot as much as possible in the middle of the desert in Morocco. We got some some stuff we got to jettison (laughs) over the desert. So if you guys could just go film there to give us an excuse to be there. (laughs) yeah, That's basically what happened. Now, there's just... A couple of problems with this, one being that Morocco in October of 1985 is not a particularly fun place to be. Uh, North Africa in general is not, especially not for Dustin Hoffman, who is Jewish. Yep. Um, Now, some things that had happened at the very beginning of October. Israeli warplanes had recently bombed the Palestine Liberation um, Front's headquarters in Tunisia, nearby Tunisia. And then a week later, 
uh, the Palestinian Liberation Front had hijacked, famously hijacked a cruise ship off the coast of Egypt, murdering yes. Jewish American Leon Klinghoffer before tossing him overboard. This is literally like two weeks before they're supposed to mm-hmm. go start shooting in Morocco. And Dustin Hoffman is maybe the most famous Jewish man in the world yes. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, like, he's uncomfortable. They're not, you know, yeah. they're not super stoked on this. There was also a bit of a tiff going on with some local guerrilla warfare. Um, it's just not a great time to to be shooting there. Now, the production designer who we'll hear from quite a bit in this episode, Paul Silbert, also uh, an Oscar winning production designer, by the way, said, uh, quote, we heard there were armed Palestinians headed our way. There we were with Dustin, who just sort of stuck out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another person said that uh, they'd been looking for locations when this extremely agitated Moroccan general came rushing up, saying you have to wait for the minesweeper. There are mines all around here. You could lose a leg. (laughs) And they said they had been walking for three days and didn't know. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of what they are walking into. Now, some other fun little production snafus that uh, crop up on set. There's the problem of having to locate a blue-eyed camel who features uh, Mm -hmm. rather prominently in the movie as a blind camel. It's not Mm -hmm. blind in real life. Um, I can't remember her name, but apparently Warren Beatty really likes the camel. Camel did a great job. Um, So the story goes that animal trainer Corky Randall went to a market in Marrakesh and the first camel they saw that fit the bill had blue eyes, looked great. Uh, But being the savvy, you know, uh, production people that they are, they're like, well, we're not just going to buy the first one we see. We're going to walk around and see if we can get the best deal. So (laughs) they decide to shop around. And then to their horror, they realize that blue eyed camels are extremely rare and very hard to find. So they circle back uh, to the same stall they went to at the beginning to try and buy the first one, at which point the seller informed them that they couldn't buy it because he had eaten it. Yeah, great. (laughs) Makes sense. (laughs) You want this one? You can have it now. Otherwise, it's going to be lunch. (laughs) It's going to be lunch. Um, Oh, God. Now, to give you an idea of sort of the feeling of things on set, I came across quite a lot of commentary from particularly Silbert, who we mentioned, who claimed that Elaine May was impossible to please. And one of these said stories is that she had sent him out to find, quote unquote, the perfect sand dunes. So according to this guy, he's like, I looked everywhere. I looked outside Los Angeles. I looked Mm -hmm. all over Morocco, all over North Africa. He finally finds the perfect sand dunes. He goes to Elaine May and he's like, Elaine, I found them. And she's like, dunes? What dunes? Make it flat. And she tells him to, you know, completely (laughs) flatten it out, raise the desert and and Mm -hmm. flatten it out. Um, It should be noted that according to several other sources, that did not happen like that. Hmm. I think it's very interesting that there are so many conflicting stories about Elaine May on set. Um, somebody else was like, yeah, that didn't happen. It was flat when we got there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, many other people said that Paul Silbert absolutely fucking hated Elaine May. So take anything you hear from him with a grain of salt, I would say. But that being said, she was very demanding. Um, it, it does seem to be the general impression for everyone. I mentioned that Paul Silbert is an Academy Award winning production designer. This is because Warren Beatty did everything in his power to surround Elaine May with what he considered the best possible team to make this movie. He's this Mm -hmm. is his whole I am going to set you up for success thing. 
He, in addition to Paul Silbert, he also hires uh, Vittorio Storaro as the cinematographer. Great cinematographer. Sure, who had done Apocalypse Now uh, and Beatty's Reds, also Agatha with Dustin Hoffman, among many other very dramatic movies, it should be noted. Um, But so my point being that having so many experts around her may have actually left her a little hamstrung. Um, From what I read, it seems like she was essentially trying to stand her ground and play the part of a strong director. However, with all of these extremely experienced people around her, they're kind of looking at her like, why are you telling me what to do? And so that immediately... It's hard to bark orders when everybody else can just say like, I'm sorry, my friend Oscar here was telling me to do the other thing. Yeah. like literally, Warren Beatty has an Oscar at this point. Right. I think Dustin Hoffman had an Oscar for Kramer vs. Kramer. You're production designer has an oscar your dp will probably get an oscar it's like yeah that's not an easy a hundred percent now her relationship with vittorio is actually one of the most um unpleasant on set um Mm. he's talked about the movie quite a bit by midway through the shoot he said that he actually started putting the camera in the opposite place of where he wanted it knowing that he would be able to bring her out have her look at it and she would go, I don't want that there. I want that there and point to the other side and he'd go, whatever you say. And then he'd put it where he'd initially wanted it. Like that's where they ended up. So weird. It's very strange. But, you know, a lot of the articles that I read, uh, I read an excerpt from a biography of Warren Beatty and all of it was kind of talking about, you know, from this guy's perspective, like why won't this woman listen to an expert? The flip side of that is that he was not known for doing comedies at all, and yeah. that sh- that is her specialty and expertise, and that she was very mm-hmm. much trying to shoot a comedy, which was opposite what he was trying to shoot. So mm-hmm. I think there's two very different ways um, of looking at this. I think she was trying to shoot a different movie, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what happens throughout the whole thing. Now, tensions begin to arise on set in addition between Elaine and all of the production crew, uh, also between Elaine and Warren Beatty. Mm. He frequently was siding with people like the cinematographer or the production designer against her. Remember, these are all people that he kind of put in place on the team, not people she got the chance to handpick. Now, Hoffman claims that he became sort of a go-between for Elaine and Warren Beatty as tensions grew on set, saying, quote, I would have to ask, Elaine, what do you want me to say? I'd go to Warren. What do you want me to say? Warren and Elaine, you couldn't get closer than those two. And suddenly it was like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? But no shouting. It was worse than shouting. They stopped talking to each other. Ice. There were times there when I was the go-between. Me, of all people who have my own reputation, was going back and forth saying, come on, guys. (laughs) (laughs) relatively self-aware Dustin Hoffman in that moment actually all of his interviews about this are very self-aware and it seems like he did I think he he didn't hate his time um on this set and I think that both he and Warren Beatty actually like the movie which we'll get to a little later Mm -hmm. now our friend uh the dunes man is back again to talk about how much Elaine May hated Isabel Adjani and I want to give this story again as sort of an idea of the picture that was painted of Elaine May whether or not it's fair now, he claims that Elaine May was just a total bag of dicks to Isabella Johnny because <laughs> Elaine, essentially, according to this man, wanted to be in a Warren Beatty Dustin Hoffman sandwich. I don't think that this is accurate in any way. She gives no indication that she wanted to have any kind of sexual or romantic relationship with either of them. 
or or sandwiches or anything. sandwiches um in fact she made it pretty clear through her entire career that she did not want to sleep with the people the men she was working with because she was very mm-hmm. afraid of being labeled that and we should be very clear if she wanted to sleep with Warren Beatty, Warren Beatty probably would have slept Not with probably. her. Not probably. He time. 100% would have slept with her. There's a story so, <laughs> that does This is pre his marriage to yeah. Annette Bening. Yeah, it would not and, have been a struggle. Um, there's yeah. a story Dustin Hoffman told, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but about them shooting on this where like Dustin Hoffman's kind of unloading on Warren Beatty about how frustrated he is. And then he just stops in the middle of the conversation and looks at this woman who's wearing a full burqa riding by on a on a horse and he Dustin Hoffman's like what are you looking at like we're in the middle of a conversation and Warren's like sorry I just I saw that woman and Dustin Hoffman's like is there any woman on the planet you would not sleep with and Warren Beatty like thinks about it for a second and he's like probably not and Dustin Hoffman's like why (laughs) and Warren Beatty goes because you just never know (laughs) hey so to Chris's point, yes, 100% if she'd wanted to, that would not have been an issue. But my point is more like all of these stories start cropping up from people that mm-hmm. worked on the set about like, oh, she's vicious to the other woman mm-hmm. on set because she wanted the attention of Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. when there's no actual evidence of that from what I could see. Now, was Isabella Johnny kind of ignored because she was too busy fighting with the rest of the production and or Warren Beatty? Yes, I don't think she got a bunch of attention on this. Now, Elaine also had a habit of shooting more takes than David Fincher. As we mentioned with Mikey and Nikki, she shot 1.4 million feet of film. She actually shot so many takes in this movie. This is very sad. Um, There was a scene, I think that must have gotten cut because I don't remember seeing it, but a scene involving a cobra and a snake charmer. Yes, Um, not in the movie. The cobra actually had a heart attack and died after being required to do too many takes of the same scene. (laughs) nature's deadliest hunter killed by elaine (laughs) may's relentless perfectionism the the poor snake charmer like showed up in their trailer with a dead cobra being like you killed it like it's dead so they had to pay him more money uh production costs are just continuing to run up as they shoot Mm -hmm. more and more now, Beatty and May continue butting heads regularly, and at one point when it came time to shoot the battle scenes um, and they were kind of arguing, she just screamed at him to just do it. Um, he could have stepped in, and mm-hmm. a lot of people were suggesting that he step in and kind of take over as the director at this point. To his credit, yeah. he says no. He's like, the whole point of this was to set her up to be able to do it, so... It's going to be her project. I'm going to let her do Mm -hmm. it. Of course, at the same time, he's not exactly letting her do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you got to do it, Elaine. Also, not going to say that line. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you got to direct this movie. But not saying There were a lot of stories where it's like, (laughs) Warren, you're being a pain in the ass, too. Like, I'm sure she was difficult. But there were things where they would have a conversation about some scene. And she would be like, okay, so your cue is going to be wake up. And then they'd start shooting. Mm And then she'd be behind the camera and she would say, like, awake. And Warren Beatty wouldn't open his eyes. And she'd be like, Mm -hmm. awake. And he wouldn't do it. And then Mm -hmm. he'd be like, I thought you said wake up. We just had a whole conversation about that. And you're going to tell me. And she was like, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) So he's pissed because he feels like I set her up with everything she could possibly need. And now she's turning around and being, you know, a pain in the ass to him. She's pissed because she feels like all she's doing the entire time is just defending her own ability to direct. And frankly, it seems like they made the movie much bigger than it should have been. It's not really what she Mm -hmm. was good at. 
On December 23rd, 1985, everybody arrives back in New York um, with a bunch of stuff left unshot and everybody super pissed at each other. I was wondering, did they leave scenes unshot in general? Because the end of the movie feels a little weirdly truncated. We will get to why there are sections of the movie that feel strange. I think it has more to do with post-production than it does what was not shot. So they've wrapped up in Morocco. They've returned to New York. Everybody fucking hates each other at this point. Mm-hmm. Warren Beatty goes to the president and CEO of Columbia and says, you've got a problem. Elaine can't direct. And the CEO is like, OK, you're the producer on the movie. Fire her. Uh, mm-hmm. Warren Beatty's like, I'm not going to fire her. I got her this movie for it to be her movie. Uh, instead, he says, I would like to now shoot double the content, his version of Ishtar and hers. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So they start shooting some pickups. No. Yeah, he wants a different movie. They don't do a lot of it. um, But by 1986, the film was shot 108 hours of it, to be exact. Okay, so quick thing. Yeah. when you sh- shoot a movie, your you know shooting ratio is how much footage you shoot versus how long the movie yeah. ends up being. And the most famous example, probably for like you know the most footage shot at least at the time, was Apocalypse Now, which we talked about, which shot millions and millions. And I think it shot like you know almost three hundred hours basically compared to the final film. Mm, but the final film and is quite long. It is, yeah, yeah, but still, I think you know, three hundred to th- versus three hours, so it's like a hundred to one shooting, you know, ratio. And then Primer, the little indie film from the early two thousands about time travel, was almost one to one. It was they had so so little money that they basically were shooting and keeping everything that they were shooting. So a hundred and eight hours of footage yeah. is a lot for a two hour film. At the end of the day, now Post also takes. 10 months and Ishtar misses its Christmas release date. According to the New York Times, at one point, there were three separate teams of editors, each preparing a different cut of the film. One for Elaine May, one for Warren Beatty, and one for Dustin Hoffman. And this is not like, this is not like they're collaborating. I just hope that the reels were called the Dusty Cut. Because that would be (laughs) so fun. This is like full teams of editors like fully cutting different movies. It got so bad that at one point, Burt Fields, who is actually a very famous and powerful um, Hollywood entertainment attorney, um, Mm. allegedly ends up coming into the editing room and deciding which chunks of who's cut 
to use. Warren Beatty has denied this, but there were a lot of other people that said, yes, this happened. He literally sat there. He would start screening, uh, usually start with Elaine May's cut. And if anybody like raised a hand to flag an issue, he would stop it. They would watch the other oh, takes no. and they would swap something else in. That's how they were doing They're this. Like live lane switching. Yes. That's awful. It was just like by a show of hands who likes what take. <laughs> Oh, God. And yeah, that's it's like, what and you're not in. allowed to vote for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> like, <it's> just... <laughs> God, that sounds so miserable. And if you want to hear more instances of this, Fantastic Four, famously the director, yeah. was working on his own cut while the studio was doing another one. Uh, so you'll listen to that episode. Now, as we know about films that miss their release date, the press smelled blood in the water. Um, oh, they go wild. They love they it. They love so, it. The New York Times is so horny for a misrepresentation. Oh, release yeah. <laughs> so they start paying closer and closer attention to what they have now quickly decided was going to be a catastrophe. We saw this on the other end of the spectrum with Titanic as well, yes. where it very much was being panned as an absolute flop before it ever hit the big screen. Unfortunately, with this one, it actually does have the desired effect. Now, the worst possible thing happens at this time when they're about halfway through post-production, and that is that they lose their protector. Guy McElwain at Columbia gets kind of elbowed out of the way by, yeah. let's say, a rather uptight man named David Putnam. David hated Warren Beatty, not to put too fine a point <laughs> on it. He had like a personal hatred of him. He had produced mm -hmm. Chariots of Fire, which was up against Warren Beatty's Reds. Chariots of Fire did actually win, I believe, win Best Picture over Reds. But he still kind of viewed Warren Beatty's lifestyle and that movie as sort of like the epitome of American excess. Um, and he was very upset. It was a by movie it. that kind of like celebrated a communist figure, yeah. you know, an American communist figure. Didn't so like David Putman was an American. Yeah. No I guess. actually think he was British. I'll double check on that. Yeah. I was say if it's Chariots of Fire, then maybe he's I think British. he's British. He also once uh, referred to Dustin Hoffman as, quote, a worrisome American pest. And also called him, like, malevolent at one point. Oh, wow. Which I guess Jeez. he might not have been wrong about, given the, the press around circa 2017. <laughs> I don't think that's what he was referring to, however. Um, now, it's important to mention all of this because it is alleged, it is not confirmed, but it is alleged that Putnam may actually have been leaking quite a lot of the nasty stuff directly to the press mm. about the movie. He... It seems somewhat likely that he was out to sabotage this film, which at the end of the day was stupid. Yeah. And there have been instances that in Last Action Hero, there was an unnamed disgruntled source at Sony who they later found out was just like leaking random garbage about the movie. It happened um, with Town and Country, with New Line Cinema a little bit. So it does it does happen, even though it's not a smart play. It's not a company. smart play at all. First of all, because like... It, had this been a success, it would not have hurt David Putnam at all. Well, it would have in that Warren and Dustin would have done well. It might have, have irritated him. him personally, but would it have hurt his career? Exactly. No. He actually ends up getting shit canned a couple years later because he is a bit of a problem himself. Um, so there you go. He might be a perfectly nice man. He didn't get great press in what I was reading about this. So the movie premieres in May of 1987 to extremely mixed reviews and tepid box office success. And I want to read an excerpt from, I believe this is Roger Ebert's review. Ishtar is a truly dreadful film, a lifeless, massive, lumbering exercise in failed comedy. 
Elaine May, the director, has mounted a multi-million dollar expedition in search of a plot so thin that it hardly could support a five-minute TV sketch. And Beatty and Hoffman, good soldiers marching along on the trip, look as if they've had all wit and thought beaten out of them. This movie is a long, dry slog. It's not funny, it's not smart, and it's interesting only in the way a traffic accident is interesting. Well, I'm not going to besmirch the late No, but like, Roger did he watch Ebert, the movie? Yeah, I, but also, to be fair, we watched the director's cut. I don't it's know how different that is. It's three minutes different. I looked this up, by the way. There's not a huge difference. Um, okay, it's, I was, but it might be. I was seeing in terms of takes used, et cetera, there can be a big difference, even if the running time is not that different. True. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't think that that's accurate. Yeah. And also, like, come on, Ebert, you wrote In the Valley of the Dolls. Like, well, relax sick a burn. Bit here. Um, I, I also deep cut. I also really don't like about this review, but it is very indicative of the talk at the time that he's placing the blame squarely on Elaine May's shoulder. If you reread that, mm-hmm. it's him saying like Beatty and Hoffman, good soldiers, you know, doing their mm-hmm. job or whatever, and then Elaine May is the one who has spent millions of dollars on this, you know, absolutely plotless piece of crap. Mm-hmm. It grosses only $12.7 million in its initial run, and it had cost somewhere by the end of around 50 to $55 million to make. It's, a lot. it's bad. It's bad. It did not make its money back. However, is it the biggest financial flop we've covered on here? No. No. No, no, no. Warren and May's relationship was irreparably damaged. Their mutual friend, Buck Henry, who I believe we've talked about before, mm-hmm. once said that in the future, May would say things like, quote, are we having a good time in life or are we working with Warren? Wow. Now, Warren Beatty goes on, as we have discussed, to continue uh, having hits after this. Dustin Hoffman turns around and makes Rain Man less than a year. I was wondering after if that this. was, yeah, because I, I thought that was the late 80s. It is. Yeah. It is less than a year later. Mm-hmm. So what happened to Elaine May? She never directed a movie again. Uh, She did go on to write the screenplay for The Birdcage and Primary Colors, um, but she would never again direct a feature. Now, I want to play a clip of Dustin Hoffman presenting Warren Beatty with the AFI uh, Lifetime Achievement Award and just give you an idea of how he intros it. It's ironic that they asked me to speak at the films that bombed part of the evening. Ishtar shall rise again. That's really all I wanted to play. And it will. It will. Especially after people listen to this podcast. I hope so. Honestly, you should go watch this movie. You should. And in that clip, if you actually watch the video, when they cut to Warren Beatty, after Dustin Mm -hmm. Hoffman says that, he looks like he is in tears, like about to start crying. I think they... At the end of the day. Oh, he's genuinely pumping yes. his fist. I'm looking at the still screen right now. He's not embarrassed. No. He's like, yes, Ishtar will have its day. I think, honestly, despite everything that I read about Warren Beatty and Elaine May butting heads, I think that they both came to this movie with the best of intentions. And I think that they actually both stand behind the final product. Um and it's good. And I get the sense that Beatty liked his performance in it yeah. too, because it's unlike anything he did with you know across the rest of his career. He played kind of this like bumbling kid from uh, Virginia Town, which there's another version of his life where that's what he could have been. Yeah. And I I I don't know. I can totally see why this holds a special place in his heart. Yeah. 
So I guess the point of this is give Ishtar a chance. Um, don't don't believe the rumors that it's a piece of crap. It's not. Um, it's very enjoyable. And uh, go watch Heartbreak Kid and some of Elaine May's other work because she... It, it, this made me sad because it seems to me like we really lost the opportunity to have a truly incredible um, female comedy director. Like mm-hmm. her... We, we lost, you know, 90% you of her career because they just cut her off. Yeah. Well, and you think about the type of, for example, the type of television that's being made right now and what she, imagine if she had been born 40 years later. I mean, she would be making Fleabag, Pen15, you know what I mean? Something along those lines. Uh, Broad City, she pioneered this, you know, sketch comedy so early on. And I just, yeah, obviously we were denied a lot of great, funny, very funny, smart films i think i also from her i think she does something that you touched on earlier which is that she she chose to to tell stories with male leads in general but from a very sort of feminine perspective yeah and it's i thought so it's too. very funny it's very sort of soft there's a lighter touch to all of it that i think we don't get from a lot of the broad comedies of the time and people didn't respond well to it but in retrospect it's great it's it, this movie would do so well now because yes. it's a bromance and this movie is I love you man it's stepbrothers it's all the Judd, Judd Apatow made his living on these male to male relationships that no one was doing in the 80s like neither of them ever actually have sex with anyone in this movie no. that's the whole joke is that they both are terrible at getting women <laughs> and Dustin Hoffman makes up a nickname for himself which is Hawk <laughs> because he's so good at sleeping with women and Warren Beatty is so obsessed with him that he genuinely thinks women call him Hawk and so he calls him Hawk and like he's just so in love with him I love when he tells him early on in the story Dustin Hoffman this was like, I thought this line was so well written. I'm going to jump into what went right really quick, which I thought the writing was very sharp. It was. I, I actually, I thought the dialogue was spot on. Um, and there was a line, and Warren Beatty has some of my favorite throwaway, throwaway lines in this movie. He says, you'd rather have nothing than settle for less. Understand? <laughs> As he's trying to, trying to pump up Dustin Hoffman. And not a lot of people would be willing to go as low as you've yeah. gone. And he, it just, it's such a good anti-pump-up speech, and it works. And I, I don't know. I, I thought it was wonderful. And I, I think it would have been such a fun read, too. I think the characters really would have jumped off the page. Yeah. That moment is actually something that Dustin Hoffman called on later when talking about how he really does stand behind the film and does like it. Which also, like, I have to give him and Warren Beatty quite a lot of credit for not dumping on this film. Which we No, it would have been easier for them yes. to turn around and say, oh, we didn't really have anything to do and with they this. Did we not were just do acting that. in it. They didn't yeah. do that at all. Um, they stood behind it and they still stand behind it. And that's something that Dustin Hoffman pointed out. He was like, it's, you know, it's a movie about not choosing to sort of settle for the middle ground to be willing to be just absolute bottom of the barrel trash as long as you're pursuing what you're passionate for. And that he thought that that was a movie worth making, which I I agree. For my what went right, I... I have to go with Charles Grodin and the sort of bumbling portrayal of yeah, the CIA, so which like no. honestly was not seen a ton before this. That's something else we didn't really touch on. But underneath yeah. all of this, I think there is an undercurrent in the movie for very much skewering uh, the CIA and also the American involvement in the Middle East, which, as we know, yes. was spot on. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she yeah. nailed it, but boy, did people not really want to hear that or see it, see it at the time. Um, but again, please watch it. It is truly funny. I highly recommend it. I, I'm I'm a big I'm going to start the Ishtar fan club. Absolutely, I thought this movie was it's a great, absolute wrong. And I think something that we didn't really touch on in this because it actually is something that went very right, and not wrong at all, is that Paul Williams was brought in to write the sort of um, so bad they're good but not oh, quite good songs, songs. Um, which yes. Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty also co-wrote um, certain parts of them. But I just have to say the songs are are very funny not in like an intentionally they they somehow managed to not be intentionally funny but be so bad um it's really worth watching from beginning to end um and shout out to paul williams for the music if you admit that you play the accordion no one will hire (laughs) you in a rock and roll band that's the one that keeps coming up so good guys Thanks so much for listening. Lizzie, anything else on uh, Ishtar? No, that's it. I, our, I really enjoyed our it. Our recommendation. Yeah, give it a watch. This is one of the few that we have covered so far that I really enjoyed. Um, and I would say is definitely worth your time. As always, thank you for listening to What Went Wrong. If you're enjoying this podcast, I know we're broken records. Head over to iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. We got a great Instagram review that was basically like, listen to a couple episodes, they were trash, listen to a third one, (laughs) and it was really good. So I'm going to keep listening. So apparently, guys, rule of threes that applies to our podcast. So if this is only the second one you've listened to, give us one more try and send us your recommendations. Thanks again, Lizzie. Who sent us this one? Life is Strange 2021. Yes, it is, sir. Mm. Whose uh, first name is Logan. I will not read your full name as our hordes of fans listening uh, may be able to steal your identity. So just Logan. You could get doxxed by 40 people. Yeah. Uh, Logan, thank you very much for the recommendation. Guys, we will see you next week. Bye. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos. Mm-hmm.